This Sunday, Pastor Grace brought a message answering the question, why doesn't God leave us? Hear the word of the Lord this morning. And Stephen replied, Brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our ancestor Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him, Leave your country and your relatives and go to the land that I will show you. Then he left the country of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. After his father died, God had him moved from there to this country in which you are now living. He did not give him any of it as a heritage, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as his possession and to his descendants after him, even though he had no child. And God spoke in these terms that his descendants would be resident aliens in a country belonging to others who would enslave them and mistreat them during 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God. And after that, they shall come out and worship me in this place. Then he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the 12 patriarchs. The patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him from all his afflictions and enabled him to win favor and to show wisdom when he stood before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who appointed him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout Egypt and Canaan and great suffering, and our ancestors could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our ancestors there on their first visit. On the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. Then Joseph sent and invited his father Jacob and all his relatives to come to him, 75 in all. So Jacob went down to Egypt. He himself died there as well as our ancestors, and their bodies were brought back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. But as the time drew near for the fulfillment of the promise that God had made to Abraham, our people in Egypt increased and multiplied until another king who had not known Joseph ruled over Egypt. He dealt craftily with our race and forced our ancestors to abandon their infants so that they would die. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful before God. For three months, he was brought up in his father's house, and when he was abandoned, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. So Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in his words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his relatives, the Israelites. When he saw one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his kinsfolk would understand that God through him was rescuing them, but they did not understand. The next day he came to some of them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor pushed Moses aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? 
Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? When he heard this, Moses fled and became a resident alien in the land of Midian. There he became the father of two sons. Now, when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in the flame of a burning bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he was approached, and as he approached to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses began to tremble and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the mistreatment of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning, and I have come down to rescue them. Come now, I will send you to Egypt. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Stories are important. I've heard it said that humans are wired for stories. Who we are as people has been defined by the stories that we tell. So I thought before we got started on the story of God, I'd tell you a little bit about my story. I'm Grace. I'm the middle school pastor here at TCC, and it is an honor to worship with you, to learn and grow and discover more about God and our community together. And this is my second 4th of July in my 26 years that I have not spent with my family. Amen, though. It's good to be here with my new family at TCC. Last year was my first year, COVID, right? Thanks, guys. That was sweet. (laughs) You see, growing up, my family has a story. Every 4th of July, for as long as I can remember, we have spent it at family camp. Our family camp in Central Cal is like a you-can't-miss-it kind of experience. Everyone plans their family vacations and vacation time around family camp on Central Cal District. It's a big deal. There are grandparents who take their great-grandchildren with them to family camp. It's just what you do. It's that first full week of July. It's this tradition where we'd start loading up plastic bins in June. Uh, Looking through my Facebook timeline right now, you get your, like, this day six years ago, you posted this, and you're like, oh, middle school Grace was a fool. Middle school Greece had a lot to say all the time about all the things we were doing in preparation for family camp. Um, I posted once about needing to go through a Tetris work supply box in order to find toast to make dinner for myself one night. I said that I had to travesty microwave milk to make tea and hot chocolate instead of using like the electric kettle to make tea. And that's like not a thing you do. You don't microwave your water to make tea. Why Grace was drinking tea in June in Bakersfield, I don't know. But that's another matter. In the beginning, when we were little, we'd pile into my family's Volkswagen Vanagon. Don't know how many of you are familiar with that vehicle. It had backwards-facing captain seats and then a bench seat. So we'd put all of our supplies, like, in the middle of the van, and then we'd have two siblings facing backwards and then two siblings, like, on the bench seat. Um, It was going to be really hot, 
and the air conditioning in those cars never really worked very well. I distinctly remember one year driving up to campgrounds, having my sister Claire hold a plastic Walmart trash can to catch the condensation that was falling out of our broken air conditioning because we weren't turning off the air conditioning, but she was getting wet. So we like stopped at Walmart to get this little like plastic trash can to keep her dry so that we could keep the air conditioning going in our car. It was fine. I think that was the last year that van had air conditioning, and a couple of years later, we upgraded to a very high-tech vehicle that would tell you the temperature as you were driving, you know, the outside temperature. That was wild as a kid. It was the coolest thing. And so we'd watch as we drove that two and a half hours from Bakersfield to Camp Sugar Pine as the temperature gauge dropped from 110 to 105 to 98 degrees, which was great. And by the time we would get out of our minivan, it was about 80 degrees with no humidity, which was like this breath of fresh air after being in the San Joaquin Valley, where it's about 110 in the middle of July. Pollution is terrible. And you take a deep breath of pine fresh, camp sugar pine air. My family is also pretty big on traditions, but not like in a like, meaningful way, like some families are. We have these unspoken traditions that mean a lot, I think, to me personally. Um, I don't know if my whole family feels the same. You can ask my sister after service if she feels the same way about any of these traditions. But like, for example, Christmas Eve. Every Christmas Eve, we'll go to service at my home church. Then we'll go have dinner at my great aunt and uncle's house. Uh, We'll open presents with my dad's side of the family. And then when we were little, we would come home and we'd have a sibling sleepover. I have three sisters. I'm the second oldest. We would, all four of us, sleep in two sleeping bags. Don't know why. I think it was because one of us got a sleeping bag one year for Christmas Eve and we wanted to, like, try it out. And that was the tradition for the longest time. We'd come home and, like, all have a little four-person sleepover using two sleeping bags. Thank God as we got older, that tradition ended because, obviously, that's not something that is able to last. Um, so when we come home as we got older, we would make popcorn, and then my family's a big tea-drinking family, so we'd all make like little cups of tea, and we would watch Die Hard. And it honestly doesn't feel like Christmas Eve anymore if we don't watch Die Hard after celebrating the birth of Jesus at church in the morning. I don't know why, because Die Hard is not really a Christmas movie. It takes place on Christmas Eve, in case you're wondering. My mom was like, this is a Christmas movie, and we were like, No, it's not, but now it is. Like, it's our family tradition. So on 4th of July, if my family is not at family camp, we typically watch the musical 1776. We're a big movie family. We watch a lot of movies. And then we normally watch Independence Day, because that makes sense, right? 4th of July. But when we're at Sugar Pine, 4th of July is a little bit different. In California, you're not allowed to purchase fireworks except for July 1st, 2nd, 3rd, and 4th. That's it. And if you set off a firework before the 4th of July, there will be a cop at your house, at least in Bakersfield. They are not fans of you setting off fireworks in a highly flammable area until it's, like, safe to do so, which I don't know why the 4th makes it safe to do so, but whatever. When we're in the mountains, no one's allowed to have their own fireworks. You can drive out to Bass Lake and sit on your inner tube or rent a boat and watch 
all of the fireworks, but then it's going to take you about three hours to get back to the campground because everyone and their mom is at Bass Lake and traffic leaving is the worst. So my family would always stay at the campground and after the day's activities, whether that was moving into our cabins, um, playing different sports competitions, wherever the fourth fell on the week, after dinner and after service, everyone would be outside kind of concluding, going and getting their sweatshirts because 50 degrees feels really, really cold when you're used to 100. Coming back from snacks and they would set up some inflatables for the kids and then they would hand out glow sticks to everyone. And we had these little like helicopter toys that a lot of the kids were really fond of. And maybe you're familiar with them. They're like these little plastic toys that have these two plastic wings and you like hook it onto a rubber band and then you pull it down and then when you let go, they'll shoot up in the air and like helicopter down. Maybe you're not familiar with those. That's fine kids would start attaching their glow sticks to those helicopters and then shooting them in the air. And it was like this special 4th of July celebration even without getting to watch fireworks. <clears throat> and so I, I tell you all of that because I want to kind of tie this importance of story back to scripture. Because family camp was the time that I got introduced to one of Pastor Shauna's favorite musicals in all of existence. And I thought it kind of fit with where we were going today because today is the 4th of July. We were driving home. We always stop, again, tradition, and get pizza from Pizza Factory Sunday afternoon after the last service, and then we'd drive back to Bakersfield. So we'd just gotten lunch. I was filling up my family's minivan because I was driving home for some reason. It's fine. And my sister was like, hey, have you listened to Hamilton yet? And I was like, no, like, I don't, I don't know if I'd really care to listen to Hamilton because I don't know the story. And, like, it's just a musical. Like, it's just songs. Like, will I really care if I don't know the story? She was like, well, let's listen to it. And we listened to it twice through driving home. Like, we just let it repeat because my family liked it so much. And there is this line that's said at the very last song that is said by the character of George Washington, and it's a repeat from a line he says in the very first act. He's talking to a young Hamilton in act one, saying, let me tell you something I wish I'd known when I was young and dreamed of glory. You have no control who lives who dies? Who tells your story? And I'm sure you're like, okay, Grace, like, where are we going? You just made Jordan read almost 30 verses. What, what does this have to do with Acts chapter 7? That line from Hamilton has stuck with me since that drive back into Bakersfield. You have no control who's going to tell your story. And for me, that is something that is really, really scary because I like to have control over things and know how things are going to happen. But that's also scary because I'm a part of a people that has been shaped and molded by stories. And so are you. 
And so were the people of God as we encountered Acts chapter 7. These people are being invited by Stephen to remember a story that they knew really well. See, chapter 7 of Acts picks up with Stephen basically being put on trial in front of the Sanhedrin. He's being accused. They're asking him if this Jewish man he claims might be the Messiah, if he means that. And Stephen's standing up there saying, I don't know if you like fully understand, like, this guy is looking a lot more like the story of our Messiah than any of you have been looking lately. And they ask him, are you, are you serious? Like, do you really mean that? And Stephen's response is to tell a story. Stephen tells the story of Abraham, of Abraham's great trust in God. He tells the story of Isaac, Jacob, his son Joseph, and down and down and down the family tree all the way to Moses. And as Stephen is telling this story, he is reminding his listeners that they are also a part of that story. He's reminding those he's telling this story to that this is their story as well. And so the God question that we're working on tackling today is a really, really, really big God question that I was not a fan of getting to try and answer. And I thought, how am I supposed to answer this question without like using all of scripture and then like losing everyone's attention? Because it's a big question. We got asked, how come God doesn't leave us? Why does God want to use humans even when our lives are a mess? And I thought, as a pastor, it would be helpful to enter into scripture and look and see what God says, right? That's what we do on a Sunday morning. And I went, okay, how can we then tackle this question of who God is? a big question. And I thought, instead of trying to answer who God is, we talk a little bit about the story of who humans are first. So like Stephen, we'll start with Abraham, right? Abraham was this guy who didn't really know God. And God suddenly calls Abraham to leave everything he ever knew. And in the story of Abraham, we see a man who makes mistakes, man who doesn't fully trust God's plan and takes things into his own hands. But we also see a God who remains faithful to Abraham. And in the end, Abraham has a son named Isaac. And Isaac was this man who played favorites with his children. He was not a great guy. As having a lot of siblings, sibling rivalry in the Bible makes me very annoyed. And yet we see that God was still faithful in the midst of intense disconnect between siblings. And Jacob and Esau's story actually ends with reconciliation. And Jacob, whose name is now Israel, has many children. And as the story continues, we see a man who has not learned from his sibling rivalry and plays favorites with his own kids too. Parents, man. 
And we see brothers who don't understand why their parents are playing favorites, and so they take it out on their youngest brother, which, let's be real, their youngest brother was a little cocky. He kind of had it coming. But they commit this ultimate act of betrayal, and they sell their own baby brother into slavery. So Joseph, baby brother, is abandoned by the people who are supposed to care and protect him, right? His family. And at the lowest point of his story, we find a Joseph in prison, forgotten not only by all of his siblings, but also by the people he is being imprisoned by. And yet, because of Joseph's gifts and talents, he is not only able to get out of prison, he saves all of Egypt from a famine and also saves his own family from starvation. And with Joseph in Egypt, his whole family ends up moving back into Egypt. And again, by the grace of God, we see reconciliation between brothers. But as time goes on, these Egyptians forget who these Hebrew people are, and they enslave them. They feel threatened by the thriving of the Israelites. And for years, the people of God feel as though God has left them. And then one day, a baby named Moses is born. And for those of you that were here last summer, we're pretty familiar with this story, right? Moses is saved from death as a child. He grows up in Pharaoh's own court. Uh, He goes out to visit his own people, kills an Egyptian, and then has everyone turn on him, or so he thinks. So he runs into the wilderness and is there for 40 years before coming back. But even while Moses is there in that wilderness space, God is quietly working on his heart and in his life. And if we remember from last summer, the end of the Exodus story, Exodus, right? God frees God's people through Moses from Egypt. Throughout Scripture and the story of God as we're being called to remember Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, we see God's faithfulness as God partners with humans. God's people are invited to remember and reenact God's story through their festivals and traditions as well. We see this as the people of God participate in feasts and festivals like Passover, where they remember that God saved them from slavery in Egypt. Or the Festival of Booths. We did that a couple years ago with our teens, where we remembered that God was with us even as we wandered in the wilderness. Or Purim, where we celebrate all that God has done through Esther, saving God's people from a total annihilation. And as Scripture continues, we get to see God partnering with God's people through many other characters as well. Take the book of Judges, one of my favorite books because there's so many fun stories in it. There's individuals like Gideon, Deborah, Ehud, Samuel. All of these people are really unlikely. I mean, Gideon Gideon ends up saving God's people and delivering many triumphant victories, but you know where Gideon's story, like, starts? Gideon's a coward. Gideon's hiding with, like, wheat from the enemy because he's too afraid of them. 
And yet God lets Gideon's story become a story of courage. Or Deborah. Deborah was a woman in a patriarchal society. And Deborah was given the opportunity to be the voice of God to God's people. Or Ehud, this one's fun. Ehud was a left-handed dude who because of his left-handedness kept his sword like on his right hip, right? And he is credited with killing this evil, horrible, wicked Moabite king. Because like if you're right-handed, you're going to have your sword on your left hip. So they checked his left hip for like his little dagger and they're like, oh, you're good, dude. And then he goes into this throne room and like pulls out his sword and kills this king. That's in Judges. That's fun. I'm a fan. I'm a middle school pastor. Can you tell? (laughs) Or Samuel. Samuel was one of the last prophets who watched with sorrow as God's people demanded a king instead of trusting God and God's prophets. But he did what God said. And he watched as this king was a huge disappointment to God's people. And he listened to God again and went out and anointed King David. Well, Saul was still on the throne, which is pretty intense. Okay, last one. What about David, right? David was a man after God's own heart. But can we stop and think for a second everything that goes into David's story? David was messed up. David was a selfish person who was a murderer. He slept with another man's wife and then killed him, the man who was married to this other woman. Not cool. And he would have kept living his life like nothing was wrong or that he'd done nothing wrong if Nathan hadn't listened to the prompting of God and confronted him, which for me, I think is the worst part that like it took another person to be like, yo, David, dude, like this is not okay. Like he couldn't even recognize the sin in himself. It took someone else. And yet when we look at scripture, we go, David was a man after God's own heart. Okay, (laughs) what? David was a man after God's own heart. Because throughout scripture, when David is confronted with the sin in his life, he repents and turns back to God. And by the grace of God, we are given that same opportunity daily as well. Can I get an amen for that? Okay, I lied. One more, Esther. Esther's one of my favorite characters because in the book of Esther, God isn't mentioned once. But Esther is one of the best books in all of scripture to see the faithfulness of God. I like to think that the reason we tell Esther's story with Esther as the heroine is because she acted like she was listening to the voice of God throughout the story. She acted like this main character doing all the things that I probably wouldn't do because they were scary and dumb. Trusting that God would be faithful without ever having God speak to her directly. And each of these characters are gone. They have no way of controlling how we interact and tell their stories today. And someday, none of us will be here either. 
Someday we'll be feeding daisies or whatever the saying is, right? And that's super exciting and wonderful. But it's the truth. It's what it means to be human. And I want to stand up here today and talk to you about this, not because I want to then turn to some like fire and brimstone, like turn or burn kind of sermon, because honestly, I don't feel like that's even a helpful way to articulate our relationship with God. I stand up here today to try and tell you the story of God. Because when we look back at scripture, we are seeing person after person being invited into that story. And their roles are never perfectly dictated by God. We see that over and over in all these messed up people who are asked to partner and then doubt, feel like they need a little control in their lives, worry. We see Abraham going off and having a kid with someone that wasn't his wife because he didn't trust that God was gonna provide. We see broken families. We see individuals exerting their control over other people. I mean, even in Esther, we never hear God tell Esther what to do. We hear her uncle. Maybe you're here for a purpose. And all of these stories are so, so, so important when we're working to answer, why doesn't God give up on humans? Because if I'm going to be honest, I don't have the answer to the why. Why does God do what God does? I don't know. But I don't have to know the answer to why God does what God does. Because I've been given a who. I don't have to know why God does what God does. Because I'm being invited to see who God is. We've been given scripture. We've been given a community and a family. We have been given tradition in which we get to see God at work in the world. And so while I can never tell you why God does what God does, I don't feel like I have to tell myself that. Like in Exodus chapter 3, when Moses is encountering the burning bush, Moses is too afraid to even ask God directly, like, who are you? Moses is like, okay, hypothetical question here. Uh, if I go to the, the people in Egypt and I say, oh, like, God sent me, and they're like, well, who, who is this God? What, what am I going to tell them? And God's answer, I think, tells us everything about God's who and God's why. God says, I am who I am has sent you. Tell them the I am has sent you, which is really helpful, right? You're like, what does that even mean? I love Hebrew. It's one of my favorite languages out of all of the three languages I've attempted to learn because Hebrew is this really artistic, creative thing where like when I took it with Mike Jackson, there wasn't necessarily a wrong answer. It was like, are you being faithful to the text? It's great. Greek is not like that. Greek is really scary. But with Hebrew, you get these general understandings of these words, and as they all come together, it paints this beautiful picture of intention. 
And another way of translating this in Hebrew is, I am whoever I am. I am being whoever I am being. I will be whoever I will be. It is this past, present, future articulation verb that says that God is, like capital I-S, is and is being and will be. And this name, this I am, becomes a sacred name for God. It's a name that um, is never said aloud by the Hebrew people. When you read it translated in English, it's all caps Lord, L-O-R-D, but like all capitalized. And that's letting you know in the English that it was like the holy name. They never wrote the vowels for the holy name. It was this understanding that I am is this beautiful expression of who God is but it is also this expression of who God is that is so holy and wonderful and vulnerable of God that we are not going to abuse this name. We're not even going to speak it. So I don't know why God does what God does. I would never stand up here and tell you why God does what God does because I think that that makes God too easy. But I have been and you are being invited to see God act over and over and over through scripture, through history, through tradition. I know that God is faithful. Even, or maybe especially, in really messed up, broken human lives. And I would like to say that I am an example of God's work in those moments of brokenness and messiness. Why does God not leave us? Because that's not who God is. God is the God that made humans and then walked with them in the Garden of Eden. God is the God that doesn't give up on us even when our lives are a mess because I think in those messy, broken moments we are capable of seeing God's character more clearly. God doesn't give up on humans because that's just not who God is. And in a moment, we will come to this table be invited into this ultimate act of giving up control and entering into God's story, which we at TCC, we get to do that every single Sunday. Because as we approach this table, we're being invited to participate in Christ's death and resurrection. But before that resurrection comes, we have to be willing to participate in that death to die to everything we have ever known in order to enter into a new story. So why doesn't God leave us? Because that's not who God is. And while I don't know that why, I know the who. And as I wrote that in my notes, it wanted to capitalize the who, which I thought was great. Oh, we should have done a Who song. That would have been fun. <laughs> and while I have no control over what happens to my story when I leave this pulpit, when I leave this room, when I leave this life, 
I know who God is. We are all being invited to know who God is every step of the way. And I want to be a part of that story, whatever that story looks like. As we enter into a time of prayer, these altars, they are always open. If you are looking for a moment to accept your role in God's story, whatever that looks like, exactly where you are is where you're supposed to start. Will you join me in prayer? God, thank you. Thank you that you are the ultimate storyteller who has caused all of creation to come into being by your very word. And thank you that you, God, have invited us to participate in that story. I pray that you are at work in our lives, in the moments of celebration, in the times with family as we leave this place, but also in the hurting, God. In the places where we miss your presence the most. God, the places where you might feel the most absent. Be with our community, God, as we enter into this week. Be with our children as they go to camp in the next two weeks. Work in their lives. Mold and shape their hearts for your story, God. Be with our community as we grow as we enter into a new phase of life, as things continue to reopen, as our economies come back, God, be with our leaders and our local authorities, be with our president. May you guide us as the church to be your body in the world. Amen. And so we're invited. We're invited to participate in the story of God. We're invited to participate in a story that has been told daily, weekly, and is something that is being participated in with churches across the globe. So if you'll join me. On the night that our Lord was betrayed, He sat at a table with his friends who'd become family, with the people that he had journeyed with for years, knowing this was their last time together in this way. And as he looked around, he took the bread and he held it up and said, this is my body, which is broken for you take and remember. And when they had taken the bread, he passed them the cup and told them that this is my blood which has been shed for you. Drink this in remembrance. And I can't help but think that as the disciples were participating in this meal, this meal was a part of a story that they were familiar with. It was the Passover. 
And this wasn't normal for the Passover. But we're in the middle of a story, right? And when we're in the middle of the story, things don't always make sense in the midst of the action. Sometimes we have to go through it in order to be able to look back and recognize how God was faithful in those moments that made no sense in that time. But luckily, God doesn't leave us, even when we feel like maybe he has. Amen. Thanks for tuning in this week. If you'd like to join us for worship next week, we have a couple options available for you. You're welcome to join us online at 8.45, beginning with our virtual lobby, followed by service at 9 a.m. on Facebook Live. Or you can join us on campus at 335 Murfreesboro Pike for worship at 9 a.m., followed by discipleship classes at 10.30.